Well, good morning. It's great to see you. So glad you are here. Could you turn to someone around you and say good morning to them for a moment? Shake their hand if you feel comfortable doing that. This is a safe space. If you don't want to touch them, that's all right. That's okay. You know, but we are glad that you are here on this beautiful July morning. It is the last Sunday of the month of July. And so the summer is kind of slipping away on us, but we are, we are glad that you are here. For those that are at the beach or wherever else that we miss them also, and uh, we know that they will return. But today we continue in our series through the Apostles' Creed. We have been in this series, well, this marks week number eight. Today, grab your Bibles, the book of Matthew chapter 25, and we start reading in verse 31. In a few moments when we get there, we will stand if you feel comfortable doing that in a few moments also and recite the creed together as we have been doing. For the last eight weeks, if we have walked through the creed together, this is an amazing historical statement that we make every time we stand and recite it together. It binds us to some real powerful church history in a culture and even in a church culture today where we find that there is a great discount on church history. We truly believe that there are there's great foundation that we draw from these thousands of years of church history for us as the modern church today, the postmodern church. And, and what it does, it binds us to orthodoxy, to that of tenet of faith and belief. And so thus far in our reciting and going through in our teaching of the Apostles' Creed, everything that we have taught is, has been historically accomplished already. But today we step out in a little different vein because today we approach something that is yet to be accomplished And because that we are going to talk about something that is yet to be accomplished, it creates a few difficulties for us this morning. And so I thought about that. The first is this, that everything else that we've already talked about has already happened. We've talked about God the Father, and He has created all. And and we talked about Christ being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, buried. And then uh, we've talked about Him being ascended But now we get to this part where it says, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And so English understanding is this, that will and shall, it's not happened yet. So we're talking about something that is yet to to come about. So today we place our trust and our belief in something that's not yet happened. And so the creed starts with this statement, I believe, not I know, because we understand that. I know is information, and that's a wonderful thing, and we have to have that. But I believe is simply translating that information into action within our life. It it, it propels us to do something with what we, we know about. And so today when we read this and we talk about this and we stand and say, this is what I believe, then we grasp that we are placing our trust in something that is yet to happen. Well, that's the first kind of difficulty. The second is this that we're going to talk about judgment. Oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? You think, man, I knew that I should have stayed at home today, you know, because if I known today was judgment day, then I wouldn't have come to church. I'd have waited till next week because the next week we could talk about the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be a lot of fun. It absolutely is. But today we talk about judgment because nobody really gets giddy over the idea of judgment. You know, if you have a judgment line over here, nobody's running to get in that line. That's just not where you want to be. If you've ever gone to court, I don't know if you've ever been there or not. And, and no, I've never found anybody who says, boy, I really love standing in front of that judge. It was an exhilarating experience. And I feel such more uh, empowered by doing that. No, because no one, none of us likes to be judged by an authoritative figure. We don't. It, it brings tension within our lives. 
And, and so when we go back to the creed and we look at what we study thus far, we talk about the triune God, yes, and we don't really understand all of that. It's hard to wrap our mind around that of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, yet three in one entity. Yet we, we, we talked about the, Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit. We don't quite understand all of that either, but yet we love the Virgin Mary, so we kind of say, oh, that's, that's okay. Forgiveness of sin is good, but when we get to judgment, this is a challenge. It's a challenge. It really is. And so what I should have done is I should have advocated this to Travis to preach on judgment this morning is what I really should have done, yeah, and showed back up, you know, when all the smoke clears next week and think, oh, here I am and it's all good, right? But I didn't do that to you because I love you, brother. Okay, but, but I want to talk to you about this for a few moments. But before we do that, we're going to stand in just a second and recite this together. And in reciting the creed over these past few weeks, what we've realized is this, that we align ourselves with orthodoxy of Christian faith for well over a thousand years. And simultaneously, we're also standing and and affirming our faith, and we're saying that, that there are things that we stand for and we believe in. We believe in them, not just know them, but we believe in them. And then there are some things that we absolutely reject about the modern narrative of our day, that what we realize is that everyone is a disciple. We're being discipled by something in this life. And whatever we're being discipled by becomes the lens in which we see life through. And so when we stand and say the creed together, what we're saying is we reject some things in life that are trying to disciple us. We don't, but we pull all of our chips to one side of the table and then we say, this is what we believe. And so each week I've given you a couple of isms, a couple of isms. And so we've talked about materialism and progressivism and all kinds of other things. But today, the couple of isms is this. The one is this, is fatalism, that we reject the idea of fatalism. And that is that we understand that God is absolutely sovereign, that God knows everything in the future. Boy, this is really a mind blower when you begin to think about this, isn't it? That, but we reject the idea that we're helpless and hopeless just because God knows everything about the future. That man has a responsibility. Man has a responsibility in life, and that responsibility matters. It's not just we this somehow that we abdicate our responsibility because God is sovereign. We reject that way of thinking. We do. And the second is this of hedonism. Hedonism is that of is life is about me gaining pleasure and avoiding as much pain as I possibly can. So the more pleasure that I gain in life, the more successful life is for me. And what I realize is this, that sometimes in pain is the way God molds my life. It is the way he molds my life. Yes, because at times I respond better to pain than I do pleasure in, as far as making change in my life. That's kind of odd, but it's absolutely true. So God places us in, allows us to go through trials, not temptation, but trials in order to mold our lives. So we reject those ideas. We reject those ideas. And we say, this is what we believe as Christians. This is what we believe. So if you're comfortable, safe space. If you're not, I understand. And you can be, you stay seated if you want. But if you are comfortable doing this, would you stand, please, for the reciting of the Apostles' Creed together? Would you stand? We're going to read together. And then I'll have you seated. And then I'll have you stand later on. It's like calisthenics. And you, know, you, just, you just get healthier when you come here, okay? But let us read together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. 
the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for doing that. It's such a powerful thing when we unite in a community of believers, not just in this room together, but with believers well over a thousand years in church history who have recited the creed together and saying firmly, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. Thank you. We always say that, understand this, that creeds have no authority within themselves, that they simply point us or reflect to ultimate authority, and that is the Word of God. And we also say that that we don't believe in incantation, so this is not going to make you more favorable with God, or nor is this going to make you more lucky in your life in any way, form, or fashion. But yet this is saying that we stand and say this is a statement of our faith. When we say things like the Catholic Church, we're talking about that of the universal church, the whole church, the body of Christ, which actually Travis is going to be teaching on that. That's one Sunday morning. And so that's, that's going to be a great day. You want to be here for that one also. So as we get into this this morning, our conversation today, even if you have church background, when we begin to talk about that of the second coming and the judgment, boy, all kinds of questions begin to arise within our our minds. The first thing we think about, if you're kind of like me, because I'm a very, uh, like a linear thinker, so I want to know the sequence. So how is this all going to be laid out? I want to know the steps and how all this is going to kind of come about. And so how, how is this going to be laid out? How does it happen? And what can I expect? Because I don't like surprises. So what can I expect through all of this? And can I tell you of that of sequence order of happening and what to expect? I'm not going to answer any of those questions this morning. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. So you can just kind of erase that from your brain, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to answer one question, and that is, why is this important? Why is it in the creed? Why has believers been doing this for over a thousand years, saying this statement and reciting it together? Why is this important? What does the return of Christ and the subsequent judgment reveal about the character and the nature of our God? Because that's what we've been talking about through this process. And to understand that, we go to Matthew chapter 25. A little background for a moment before we read together that Jesus is responding to some questions of his disciples. He's just entered Jerusalem in this triumphant entry. He's come in on the back of a colt, and he's walked in, and the palm, the palm branches are laid before him, all those kinds of things. Did you know that, that story very well, most of you? And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then right after that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees begin to attack him and discount him. They do. They push back against Jesus being any kind of king whatsoever or are concerning his soon coming. And so his disciples say, hey, we have a question for you, Jesus. And, and their question is, how do we know that you're going to return? That's what they ask him. How do we know that you're going to return? And what are the signs of the end of the age? How do we know these things? And so he answers the question in Matthew 25, verse 31. It says this, And when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you comforted me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Notice they're surprised at the words of Jesus they, they, in this, in this um, discourse that he's giving as he relates this statement to them. They're surprised and they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and give you drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Verse 44. Then they also answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, that's a powerful passage of Scripture, isn't it? Yes, it, it really is. You know? It's not necessarily this text that you show up to like your Bible study and say, Hey, I have a devotion to share with you guys this morning. You know? and it's going to be really uplifting for your day. And here it is. Okay, It's about sheep and goat. Sheep and goat. No, that's not it. But what this is, there are five discourses that we find in through the book of Matthew. Five discourses, and this is the last. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And what we find is Jesus is sitting on the side of the hill, the Mount of Olives, and he is answering questions from his disciples. Previously, he has given some lengthy addresses to some questions that they've had dealing with the end time and other things. And he says, hey, this is what things are going to look like, guys. This is the way it's going to look. And, and he said, this is the way it's going to look when the temple is going to be destroyed. This is the way it's going to look when that of heresy begins to rise and Christians will be deceived and, and they, will, they will follow heresy. And he said, this is what it's going to look like when the sudden and terrible day of the Lord comes, the second coming happens. This is what it looks like. And then he goes into these parables and he starts with a parable of the ten virgins and he talks about those that prepared and those that were wise and those that did not prepare and those that were foolish about the coming of the bridegroom. Then he goes to the ta- uh, parable about the talents. And there's three servants and you know, and they're all given this equal amount and, and are all given this amount. And then one, one hides it and he doesn't invest it and the other invests it and they increase what has been given to them. And the master returns and judges them. Jesus is building out understanding for them and for you and I today. In this coming suddenly, in, in his coming suddenly, that he says, you should be ready. That's what he's saying, that you should be ready for my coming. And then he goes from a metaphor to simply saying, let me explain to you what's going to happen here. And he starts out when, when the Son of Man returns or when the Son of Man comes. A couple of thoughts. In fact, just two of them today. Believe it or not, just two. Okay? The first is this. I know you're thinking, oh, they're two very long ones. We know you, Mark. But just two. The first is this. The, come, the return of Christ reveals his glory. And I think this is really important for us to understand today as we're working our way through the creed. Verse 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. There's this contrast here. Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem as a king. And He's been refuted and rejected, uh, accused by the the Sanhedrin and and those uh, Pharisees saying, Hey, who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are to enter Jerusalem like David would have entered Jerusalem? Is exactly what they're saying to him. As he was the king, but you're not a king. You have the authority, nor do you have the right. And what Jesus is saying to them is, hey, fellas. It doesn't say, hey, fellas. I just put that in there. But what he's saying is, hey, fellas, you need to realize there's a day coming. Understand this. There is a day coming when the Son of Man, the one whom God has sent with a mission here on this earth, will have a glorious return. And on that day when I return, there will be no dispute. There will be no questioning. And there will be no wondering. Because I will not be sitting on a dusty hill on the countryside outside of a small, nothing little town, speaking to a small group of my disciples But they will be a day coming when all the nations will kneel before me, when all the angels will be surrounded around me. And it will be obvious there will be no question as to who I am, because you will see the Son of Man come in all of his glory. That's powerful. That today that we we you know people debate this all the time. Who is Jesus? And, and what does Jesus, what did, what did he really accomplish? And was he the son of God or was he not? And people attack his deity. Some people don't strip him of all of his deity, but they somehow uh, lessen his deity. And I want you to say, I want you, us to realize this morning, there is a day coming when there will be no debate on who Jesus is. No debate. Ah, oh, I love that. Yes, And when that day comes, and when the sky cracks open and he returns, no one is going to say, is this who he really is? No one's going to ask that question because his glory will be revealed and sitting on his glorious throne, surrounded by his angels, and it will be obvious Christ reveals his glory. That day will happen, and Jesus says, prepare for it, is what he says. Prepare for it. Huh. I'm, I'm not sure that we talk enough about the coming of Christ in the church today. I'm, I'm really not sure that we do. We need to prepare for that day because it will come and he will be revealed as Jesus, the Son of God. And there will be no debate. But the second thought I have is this. And the last one is the return of Christ reveals his sovereignty. This is the long one. That was a short one. This is the long one, okay? But the return of Christ reveals his sovereignty. Look at verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He knows us. If anybody can separate that of sheep and goat, he can do that because he knows us. And he separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right But the goats on his left, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Because this was always God's plan for us. Understand that. It's not as if he just somehow come up with a plan because we mess things up so terribly. It's always been God's plan for us to spend eternity with him. Always. Because he's a loving father. Now, this talks a lot about sheep and goats. Now, some of you, I don't know, some of you may own a sheep and some of you may have some goats. I don't know. I've always been intrigued by goats. I think they're very interesting animals. They are. But I'm not a farmer, so I don't know a whole lot about this, so I read. Actually, I Googled, okay, is what I did, right? And that's what you do too, so don't look at me in judgment, all right? But, but I Googled this. And, and the first thing I understand about sheep or goats is that it was not uncommon in that of the Near East for them to be herded together. 
that was not an uncommon thing. But as I began to read what I realized it was tradition in that time for that of when evening would come just before the end of the day that the shepherd would always separate the sheep from the goats at the end of the day. And something went off in my brain. You know, it did, yes. And, and it, said, it said to me, Jesus is absolutely amazing. I know he's God, but he is laying this out so they can all understand this so vividly because they live this in this agrarian society, so they understand that of sheep and goats and herding and all that kind of stuff. And so he relates it to somebody they can understand at the end of every day that the shepherd would separate the sheep and the goat from each other at the end of that day. And that's exactly what he's saying. And secondly, what I've learned is this, that when they're both in their natural habitat being herded together, sheep and goat, that they're not clean animals. I don't know if you've ever been around sheep or not, but they have a wonderful odor about them. I don't know if you've ever known that. Jesus relates us to his sheep a lot of times. I think there's a lot of reason for that. Isn't that right? Yes, Yes, a, a great deal of reason. You know, they're the animal that eats everything on the hillside and then stands in their own, uh, uh, own poop, you know, kind of deal. And uh, I could have said that nicer, but that's just the word that came to my mind. And, and, and then and they'll starve themselves to death, not moving to the next hill. Yes, so he calls us sheep. But he, here's the thing. That, but what I found is when they are in the same environment together, that from a distance, many times from a distance, the sheep and the goat are hard to distinguish apart. And usually it's only the shepherd that can distinguish them apart. That'll preach. Isn't that right? Yes, it will. That he is the shepherd, the good shepherd, who knows us and who knows who are the sheep and who are the goat. And who is able to separate because sometimes sheep looks, they look like goats and goats look like sheep. Ah. And Jesus is so committed to you and I being ready for this day that is to come. In his mercy and his grace and his love for us, he's so committed that he lays out this analogy for them at this time. And he lays it out for you and I to have this understanding that he wants us to be ready because there is a day coming when he will come as the king. He will come as the king, the shepherd, and he will, there will be no doubt about who he is. And he will come to separate the sheep from the goat in this life. And the sheep will be on the right the goat will be on the left and he will say to the sheep at the end of this period he will say to them enter into enter into my presence enter into my kingdom he will say that and he will cast the goats into that ever everlasting darkness and i know in our culture that that is such an unpopular thing to say from the stage in church on a sunday morning i realize that is yes but what i want you to understand that it is truth Popular or not, it is truth. And I have to speak the truth to you today. Because in this day, no one is going to come to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, I think you kind of got this wrong, you know, because you've mistaken me for a goat, but I'm really a sheep. And I think you need to take one more look at me, you know, just to take one more real good look at me because I'm really not a goat, but I'm a sheep. No, he knows. He absolutely will know. And there'll be no mistakes that day. No mistakes that day. Because when you look at the language that Jesus uses here, 
He turns to the one on the right and he says, come. It's an invitation to them. We've had two invitations as believers. One, come to my salvation. Come to my mercy, grace, and forgiveness. The second invitation from Jesus is this, to come into my kingdom, to inherit the kingdom. And he says, he uses the word inherit very intentionally because in order to inherit something, someone has to die. And Jesus gave himself. He gave himself freely for you and I so that we could inherit his kingdom and be with him for all eternity. He made a way where there was not a way for our lives. He made a way. He made a way. Look at verse 35. And he says to those on the right, For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink, and I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you, you came to me. And I think in reading this, we have to be very careful to not draw the conclusion that this is somehow about works within our lives. It's somehow about how many people I feed and how many people I clothe and how many people I let sleep on my couch in my living room that somehow gives me favor with God. That is not what this is about at all. Understand that. No, that we are blessed by the Father through the death of the Son, illuminated for our understanding through the Holy Spirit to inherit the kingdom prepared for us. And what I love about this is before any sin was ever committed in my life, before I ever existed, before any sin was ever committed in your life, this was the plan for our lives. He prepared this from the very foundation of the earth for you and I. Because He is a loving and a just and a kind and a merciful God. But look at their response. They're like surprised. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to none of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Their response is not, boom, we nailed it, you know? I mean, we got this thing right. Dude, we showed up at the right time with with a meal, and we showed up at the right time with some clothing, and we opened our door to our home at the right time. That's not it. It's like they're saying, wait a minute, Lord, when, when did we? You know, they're, they're kind of like uh, opening a sentence. When, when did we? And did we do this, really? And they're really surprised at what Jesus is saying. It's this contrast of who Jesus is, this contrast of King, who is the judge sitting on the throne of glory, and he associates himself with the lowly. When you do this to the least of these, to the disenfranchised, to those that are broken, to those that are struggling in life, to those that are without, those with lack, when you do this, you're doing it to me, he says. And, and what, what he's saying is your regard toward them is like submission to me as the king, is what he's saying. It's evidence of your love for me. It's, this is not the qualification to get in, so don't mistake it for that. This is not like the golden ticket. This is not what you do to get into the kingdom. No, but this is the evidence of the faith that's already inside of you, is what it is. And I think when we've used this statement many times, we've quoted this scripture, we've quoted it somewhat out of context because this is not just about you doing these things to get in. This is about the evidence of faith that's already in you. And who knows the evidence of faith that's in us? It's the shepherd. It's the good shepherd. It's the king. It's the savior. He knows that. So he is the one that is able to separate the sheep from the goat. Yes. And so if we talk about those on the right, 
which are sheep, then we have to talk about the goats on the left. We have to talk about that for a moment. Because for them, it's not an invitation, but it's a command to depart. Go into the place that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because there's no evidence of professed faith. It's not that he's looking for perfection. That's not it. Because if he's looking for perfection, then you know what? I'm looking at a herd of goats this morning. Am I not? Yes, exactly right. That's not what this is about. He's looking for that simply Uh, within our lives, that evidence of professed faith within us. No, it's not not like, well, you know, you didn't take time to feed me when I was hungry, give me drink or thirsty or care when I was thirsty, care for me all this. And they're surprised. They're surprised at what Jesus is saying to them. They are. But no one says, hey, you don't have the right to do this because at this time he's been revealed at, at, at who he truly is. So that day is past of this discussion about who he is. They're surprised with the measure of which Jesus used to find the evidence of their faith. And I think that's something that we really have to take a moment and give some great thought to within our lives. Because he says to those on the left, go into eternal punishment. I have to say this to you this morning. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just expounding in a way, in my limited and capable way of, on the powerful words of Jesus that's life, not my words. But he says to the left to go into eternal punishment. And it's not a temporary slap on the wrist, no. But we're meant to feel the full weight of eternal punishment here. And he says to those on the right, those that are faithful, enter into life, receive life. What is, what is God revealing to us through this? I think something very powerful. And if I just left you right now and I said, okay, let's pray, you know, get the musicians out here and let's left you like, well, Mark, really? You've left us really on like a downer, you know, kind of deal. And, and this is really, uh, I don't know, and... You know, they're, they're not serving alcohol yet. This is, you know, until one o'clock, so I can't go get a drink and, and kind of work this out. So, I mean, no. Here's what we glean from this. That we have a merciful judge and we have a just judge. And you can't separate the two. Because if you took, take one from the other, then it nullifies the other. You cannot separate the two, that we have a merciful and a just judge. So how does this create symmetry in our hearts this morning? That we have this merciful judge and just judge, and that is balance. We talked about symmetry each week. That's balance. And so I thought, how do you work this out? How do I illustrate this for you for a moment? And it's this. And if you're a parent, if you are a grandparent, or if you've ever been hit up in the lobby by some kid or parent for a school fundraiser, then you understand what I'm about to say. But I don't know if you remember the days of school fundraisers, right? You pay your taxes for your kids to go to school, and then then they force you to sell stuff for the school. I've never quite understood that, you know, but, but we sell things like wrapping paper, magazine subscriptions, popcorn and candy, cookie dough, donuts, all those kinds of things. And they always hook your child, you know, in this secret meeting in the school, somewhere in some back room, somewhere in a low dim lighted room that they get them hooked on these incentives, right? They brainwash them is what they really do. Yes. 
And they say, if you sell this much, you're going to get a bookmark. The bookmark costs less than a penny, and you got to sell $100 worth of wrapping paper to get a bookmark. I'll go to the store and buy you 10 bookmarks. Just don't bring that crazy form home anymore. No, you're right. Yes. And, and if you sell this much, you're going to get an eraser. Really? An eraser? Uh, that's, oh, that's what I've always wanted in my life was an eraser. Yes. And if you sell a million dollars worth of wrapping paper, then you win a trip to Disney World. Yes. And your child comes home and they're indoctrinated. You can see it. Their eyes are red and they're glowing, right? And, and they've lost touch with their consciousness around them. All they can think of is Disney World. If I sell a million dollars worth of wrapping paper, I can do that. And they look at you and say, Dad, we can do that. You know what they really mean? Dad, you can do this at work is exactly what they mean. Yes, yes. And so what you do is you become the plague that all of your friends and family avoid because you're always coming with that piece of paper. Would you like to buy something for my kid to send him to Disney World? No. And if you say no, you feel evil, right? Because you've said no to a bunch of children who need your money. And so you buy something that you don't need. Isn't exactly right? Yes, yes. You're buying wrapping paper in July. I'm not even thinking about that yet. No, it it is true. It's true. Now, can I tell you, I have to give a little caveat here for a moment. That does not apply to those of you that sell Girl Scout cookies. We love you. Keep coming around, okay? You are the exception to the rule, okay? I may have just fixed it, not intentionally, that nobody's going to ever try to sell anything to me again in the lobby. That was not my intention. So keep coming. You never know. You might find me in one of those weak moments of my life. You know, you're right. Yes. Yes. And so what you say to your child is this. Wait a minute. Let's not work so hard. If you had just asked me, because this won't work so hard for something that you're never going to accomplish, because if I try to sell to all my friends, I'm not going to sell a million dollars worth of wrapping paper, but... Here is the thing. If you just come and ask me, then we would have taken you to, to Disney World if you would just ask. Why would you work so hard to earn something you ultimately aren't going to be able to earn when you could just ask to receive it? I pray that the Holy Spirit illuminates that to you right now. That those of you that are locked into this thing of trying to earn this, you go to this text and you think, oh, if I feed and if I clothe, and yes, we should do that, absolutely. The church is not just about seeing, but it's about experiencing and being the body, and we should do that. And, and absolutely, I'm not discounting that in any way this morning. But what I'm saying to you is that some of you are trying to earn something that you'll never ultimately earn. If you will just ask, you will receive it from God. Because you and I live in a broken Genesis chapter 3 world. That man is separated from God due to the sin of our lives. And God created this world in a perfect state. But yet sin entered and it fractioned the cosmos. And nothing and nothing that we could do could close that gap between God and man. But what we have gone through in the creed over the last number of weeks together, that Jesus was willing to suffer under Pontius Pilate, crucified, buried. He descended into hell on the third day. He arose. He, he, 
He, dis- he ascended to heaven. It closed the gap. It closed the gap. And can I tell you, there's not enough wrapping paper on this planet that you could sell or donuts or cookie dough or whatever else that you could sell that could make the way and make up the gap in your life. Jesus has made up the gap for you and I because he is the merciful Savior, the loving Lord of our life. He is the just judge and he has simply said, come into my kingdom because I have closed the gap. I've made the way for you to inherit the kingdom because it's always been my desire for you to spend eternity with me. Always. But we try to earn that. We try to work our way, be good enough. And he says, no. Because I make the way. And also, he's this just judge. He's right. Can I tell you? He's right to punish. Understand this. And and I, I I have to give you the full counsel of the word of God this morning. If if sin were to go unnoticed and unpunished and not dealt with, then he would not be a just judge this morning. He, He would not be that rightful father in our lives. He would not be. Listen, if you if you really went out and you hunted and you sold a million dollars worth of wrapping paper to whoever, I don't know. But if you sold a million dollars of wrapping paper and on awards day, when your kid is up there on the stage and all of a sudden here comes this other little kid and this kid has sold nothing, has done nothing, has not sold anything it has a blank piece of paper and they're both awarded a trip to disney you're going to be hot aren't you yes yes absolutely you're going to be escorted out by the sheriff's department from that school is exactly what's going to happen to you that's what's going to happen god would be evil and heinous and an unworthy judge if he did not address the sins of our lives And I finish with this. In the book of Genesis, which you know I love, absolutely, it's one of my favorite books, 18 and 25, Abraham is having this conversation with Jesus, and it works so well to to bring all this together. He's having this conversation with with God. And and after God has told Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, then, then Abraham begins to have this conversation with him. And he said, Lord, if we could find 50 righteous in the city, would you spare it? And the Lord said, yes, I would. And then he begins to go through that whole list and he diminishes the number and it begins to dwindle. And in verse 25 of chapter 18, it says this, far be it from me, the words of, of Abraham, far be, it from, or far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fair as the wicked. See his words, they're they're powerful. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And here's what he's saying to the Lord in my words. He's saying, Lord, here's what I know about you. Here's what I know about you. You know who belongs on the right and you know who belongs on the left. And you never make a mistake in those areas. It's just for you to deal with the wicked. I know that. Yes, it's also so just that you are not going to make a mistake in dealing with the righteous because I I trust that you will do all things perfectly. That's the God that we serve. That's the character and the nature of God of the God that we serve this morning. It is. 
that we have a merciful judge and we have a just judge. That he knows us. He knows us. But the last thing is this, to leave you with some clarity this morning because I think you need to leave with the clarity that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Do you understand that? Contrary to what many may try to tell you and what may be uh, tried to be discipled in our lives, that Christ takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. It doesn't, no. Now, can I tell you something about Mark for a moment? Mark has a wicked heart. Mark, you're a pastor. Yes, I know, but I'm human. Understand that. Mark has a wicked heart, and I like to see my enemies get punished. I do. You say, now, don't look at me in judgment, okay, because you know you do too, right? Yes, yes. Absolutely. That, that if, you're, if you're sitting in traffic, you know, we were sitting in traffic going to Charleston this weekend to pick up Grayson yesterday morning. And, and you know that, that like there's this evacuation uh, from the upstate always all the way to the beach. It, it, it's just like that there is the zombie apocalypse have taken place and everybody's got to get to the beach because there's no zombies there. And so there, everybody's on the road and, there's, and you're, sitting, you're sitting in the middle of nowhere just sitting there and you don't know why. And all of a sudden there's this Yahoo guy, you know, and, and he's, he thinks he has this great idea and he gets all the way in the right emergency lane and he's flying past you like he's going somewhere. What do you pray for? Now, come on. You've never prayed for a cop to show up in your entire life until then, right? Isn't that right? Because you're hoping that one of those cars he goes by is a police officer. Yeah. And he's going to see the lights go on, and he's going to say, yes, yes. Or you're so thankful that you know that the Lord is in the heart of those truckers who always pull over, and they block everybody like that, you know, and there's nothing they can do about it. Yes. But here's what I understand about the Lord. And I leave you with this thought. And he, he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. No pleasure. In fact, when Jesus in the book of Luke chapter 19, he looks over Jerusalem and, and he says that Jerusalem missed their moment of visitation. You can read it later on. He missed their moment. The Bible says that when he looks at Jerusalem, he weeps, he cries. He weeps for that. Because he is a merciful and just judge. You need to see God for who he is. Understand that. That he takes no pleasure in anyone ever perishing. That's why he hates our sins so egregiously. Why? Because he hates anything that harms us. Anything. That is our God. That he loves us. He cares for us. And so, I say this to you before we pray. That there's some of you this morning that are trying to work your way through this whole thing. You're trying to be good enough and you're trying to earn enough points. And I want to say to you today, stop. Because you'll never make up the gap. You will never make up the gap. You will never rack up a score high enough to within yourself justify yourself. That means that you are seen by God as being innocent. It'll never happen. It's not possible. 
So relax in the fact that you are forgiven today. You are forgiven. Yes. And for those of you that are not walking with Christ this morning and you hear all this, this is not about simply driving you to God by fear. That's not what this is about at all. No. In fact, the Scripture says that we're drawn to God by His loving kindness. That He's a loving God who sends His Son to die for you. And then on His ascension, He sends the Holy Spirit to illuminate and give you understanding so that your heart is open to the fact of how much God loves you through His Son. All of this for you. So that... On that dreadful day of the return of the Lord. When he comes to separate sheep from goats. That you do find yourself. On the right side of God. Because that's always been his heart for you. And always will be. But you have to make that decision today. So would you bow your heads for a moment. Father. By the power of your spirit, open our hearts and minds. Lord, may we know you like never before in our lives. God, may we leave this place with a clarity in our hearts and our minds. A balance, a symmetry that you are a merciful God. And you are a just God. And that no matter how much modern narratives would like us to separate the two, that it is not possible. So, Father, speak to us. May these words this morning become life to us. Transform us, God. Give us peace in our place in you. And Lord, for those that have unrepentant sin, for those that are not walking with you this morning, may they realize that there is no sin too great and there's no distance too far that you do not forgive and you cannot reach because you are God. So open our hearts and open our minds to you this morning. Transform us. We pray. In your name. Thank you, Father.